You're fed up with a 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from a traditional career but don't know how? Business Breaks is here to help. Subscribe now and rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. Enjoy the show. Hello everyone. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome a healthcare data trailblazer, Barry Mulholland. Barry is the co-founder of MBI, a pioneering force behind operational excellence in the NHS through precision data. In 2019, they introduced Luna, a game-changing platform, managing 40 million patient pathways daily across the NHS. Now, at the heart of their work is a commitment to automation and the power of advanced AI, ushering unstructured clinical data into the 21st century. Now, what's the end game? The most accurate data sets available, saving precious time spent on data checks and corrections, ultimately getting more patients the treatment they need. In 2021, Luna achieved a staggering 65% reduction in data quality issues in England's referral to treatment pathways. Barry's passionate drive is clear. Less delays through data correction and faster patient treatment. So join us for a captivating dive into the future of healthcare data. Barry, welcome to Business Breaks. Thank you, Dante. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure, Barry. And so to kick off, can you tell us a bit more about your background and your journey into the field of healthcare data and particularly your work with the NHS and how you got into data quality improvement. Sure. Um, I suppose as far back as university, I, I, I'm a computer science degree holder. Um, so I was always interested in data. Um, and I hadn't really got an intention of specifically healthcare. Um, but my first job was working for one of the big PR vendors, um, which is Electronic Patient Records. And that was nearly 20 years ago, 25 years ago, maybe, um, before England had really done anything in that space. So I was working in France, I was working in America, uh, and then the national program for IT launched in the UK. Um, and basically anybody who could speak English was pulled back to, to England. So I got into the NHS, if you like, um, that way. Um, but what I quickly found was that implementing these systems was difficult because whilst it's called the National Health Service, every single hospital is different. <laughs> and to try and put one system across, uh, you know, multiple hospitals was a very difficult task. And really, since that, I got interested in healthcare data and why it was so different and what the kind of reasons behind that were. And so I left the the company that we were working that I was working for, and I went into the NHS itself, working directly for it. And I did I think nine years uh, in management of, in the NHS. Eventually, getting to a place where I was running a, a surgical division in a pretty big hospital, uh, and then I left that and I went to the Department of Health, where they were doing some interesting work on reducing waiting times uh, nationally. Um, and I spent a couple of years in there doing that, but felt that it would have been easier 
to have done similar work as an independent person rather than within the Department of Health. It was almost like you were inspecting people uh, and, and people don't like that. So in 2012, I created MBI and originally it started out as a, a, a consultancy company where it was basically performance, approving performance and waiting lists. So cancer performance, diagnostics performance, RTT, referral to treatment time performance. Uh, but very quickly, we, we realized that actually it's almost impossible to improve performance if the data that we're measuring is wrong. Mm. So what I noticed from day one is that practically every decision that was being made in healthcare was based on shoddy data. And therefore, you'd have to question nearly every decision that was ever made um, because, you know, it's just not uh, the data. Is, healthcare has a very specific problem with data quality. And I, I'll talk about that probably more at length in terms of comparisons to other industries. But healthcare specifically has a massive issue around data quality. And in order to improve it, um, you've got to tackle data quality. And I don't believe that there's enough discussion about the quality of the data that we're using. So, you know, I see lots of things in newspapers about fancy apps and AI technologies and federated data platform is my new favorite hobby horse. Um, and I always think to myself, that's fascinating because all that we're doing is loading rubbish data into a really sophisticated system. And all you're going to end up with is a really sophisticated rubbish system. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and so my and MBI's vision, if you like, is to, to tackle this head on and, and fix the data. But easier said than done. Yeah. I, I can imagine, and it's quite scary, really, when you frame it in that way, because quite rightly, I mean, you get you get your data wrong in your business, you make bad decisions, you go out of business, which is awful. Yes. But, you know, when you're dealing with so many people's lives, potentially, and certainly in the case of, yeah. Absolutely. Look, I, I, I use the analogy in healthcare of banking. Yeah. Imagine... Just for a second, those that don't work in health, imagine going into your bank and every time you go in, they ask you your name, your address, and your financial history every single time. And then you find out that your account number is wrong and the money in your bank account is a couple of thousand pounds incorrect. I mean, there would be uproar. And yet in healthcare, that's exactly what happens every single day. Patient details not being right, um, medication histories incorrect, treatment plans incorrect, it, 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 and it's accepted, which I find very, very difficult to, to take. Yeah, I can imagine. And diving deeper into that notion, I, I know you mentioned previously that it's easier to get data quality wrong than right in mm. healthcare. Mm. So could you share some of those common challenges or issues you've encountered in that regard? Yes. I mean, healthcare by its very nature is the data that relates to health contains vagaries, if you like. So 
you'll have a lot of information that is not precise. It's based on an opinion. Um, it's not necessarily facts and figures like in other industries. Um, and therefore, um, almost automatically, there's a, there's a difference of opinion. Uh, and so then you overlay the actual healthcare system on top of that. And you say, leaving aside the, the, the nature of the data itself, healthcare traditionally is very poor at training staff on IT systems. It has a pretty poor track record around the role of administrative staff and um, their value to the organization. So, you know, often a lot of these administrators are quite junior and quite low paid. And then we've got, since the pandemic, another problem in terms of staff turnover. So even if you had training working properly, you've got such a high turnover of staff all the time, you're almost constantly retraining everybody because they're all new. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've come to the design of the EPR systems themselves. They're often designed with a financial slant, if you like. How do we capture as much information to make as much money? Um, and they're not very intuitive for a clinician or an administrator to use. The UI on, on the systems are clunky, um, and the amount of clicks that you have to do just to do something relatively straightforward is ridiculous. And last kind of piece of the puzzle is I, I genuinely think that there is a massive issue worldwide where since IT systems have become so prevalent in hospitals specifically, but also in GP practices and um, other healthcare settings, the amount of time that clinicians are being asked to spend on data entry versus what they would have spent on diagnosing and treating patients is increasing. And the clinicians don't like it. And therefore, often you find that the quality of the data that gets entered into these systems is poor. So there's lots of reasons why the data is poor and and what the challenges are around it. And it's a really complex problem to fix. Yeah, sounds like it. And I guess in terms of the problem is clearly defined, disparate data types, this data sets, not really designed to do what you would like it to do in terms of healthcare, but um, more like people who probably think on a commercial basis. And your your solution is leveraging AI to improve the quality of that data. So I guess, could you explain how AI, your AI product, is designed to improve data quality in the healthcare sector to yeah. reduce waiting times? Yeah, so there's lots of, as I've said, there's lots of AI products that exist in health, but they're all, to me, fundamentally flawed in the sense that they don't address the basic question of is the data that I'm using correct in the first place? Mm. Our AI is specifically aimed at that sole purpose. And what I mean by that is there is lots of information in clinic letters, in discharge summary notes, in theater procedure notes, all unstructured data, often conversations between clinicians and patients um, recorded on you know, dictation software or something like that. None of that information is actually recorded in the EPR uh, because the EPR is looking for very specific things and not necessarily interested in a 
general conversation between a doctor and a patient. But actually, those conversations are the key to healthcare. And that's where the real information lies as to what is happening with this patient. So what we pointed our uh, AI to do is it's a large language model, but because of all the years that we've been working in uh, healthcare itself, we've taught it to know what to look for in the data. Mm. And I think that's a challenge for um, a lot of these other AI companies that they don't really understand healthcare data, whereas we were lucky enough that we did. So our models start to read these unstructured uh, documents and classify them in various different ways. So for example, if a, in one letter, you might have 10 classifications. So I saw this patient today, they're on this type of medica- medication, classification one. They've got a prior history of something else, classification two. Um, we've done some sort of a diagnostic test and the results were X, classification three. On the back of that, I am diagnosing this patient with Y, classification four. I would like to add them to a waiting list, classification five. I would like to see them again in six months, classification six, and so on and so forth. And we, all of that will then be broken down by, by our tool. And then we'll compare that information to what has happened in the EPR system. So has that patient been added to a waiting list? Has that patient been uh, got an appointment in six months' time like the clinician wanted, has that, et cetera, et cetera? And while there are differences between the conversation that was had between the patient and clinician and what was actually recorded on the EPR, our tool will, will flag that up. The, the fundamental idea here is that um, patient safety, uh, we have to find a way of stopping these errors with the treatments that are that are either happening or not happening to f- even worse not happening and and that's really the goal of what what Luna um, is designed to do uh, probably one other thing just to add into the to the to the mix here I suppose is the volume of patients that we're talking about here is so big that it would be, absolutely impossible for human beings to do this Um, give you an example a a large teaching hospital in london there are these patients that get reported nationally on the rtt ptl but there are then a whole section of patients that don't get reported um in national figures so patients who have said diabetes who have to be followed up regularly they don't count in the national figures and if for example this trust i'm thinking of their RTT figure, at the moment, is about 90,000 patients on the RTT waiting list. On the the rest of the patients waiting is 1.2 million. So to give you a sense of the difference in scale of the number of patients that we have to look through, there's no way a human being could look through 1.2 million patient records. So it has to be done by a machine. And I suppose... It's only kind of in the last two or three years that that the technology has existed to enable us to do that. So it's an exciting time because prior to that, God knows what they did, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. And as you say, you already have an intention to help an overstretched public sector service that is invaluable to people. It's keeping them alive. 
ideally keeping them in the best shape possible so they can enjoy their lives while they're alive and 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 trying to make those connections using those points like a conversation that says this this and this so it gives you not just the sort of like the data points the the facts that you need to log about an individual but also the next actions like the follow-up six months later that sort of thing exactly yeah and that's amazing and i guess again coming back to tying that notion of data quality to patient care Mm -hmm. how does that uh, ensuring the data quality directly affect patient care and outcomes and you you gave a um uh, an analogy or an exa- an example but do you have any real world uh, case studies where improved data quality has led to tangible benefits for say an individual patient is there any compelling stories that have stuck in your mind oh absolutely i mean <laughs> the list is endless really um the biggest issue i i suspect i mean in terms of impact on individuals would be Patients who otherwise would not have had an appointment have, have had an appointment because of R2, where R2 will flag up this patient needed to be seen X amount of months ago and you didn't do it mm-hmm. for whatever reason. It wasn't recorded properly. And we've then flagged it up as you need to see this patient immediately. A reduction in harm speeding up the the process of which patients are going to be seen are the two big ones but clinical safety is now increasingly in our minds where we've got the ability and the tool to identify cohorts of patients who fit certain um, characteristics if you like for problems to occur so for example um, patients who may have a specific condition can we identify the entire cohort and manage them in a very specific way. Um, that's a new thing to healthcare. They, they, that's not really been possible to do in the past on a large scale, but but we now have the ability to do it. So at an individual level, I would say saving patients from being lost and, and making sure that they get seen appropriately. And then there's much more kind of population health kind of angle to it where we can identify Ends in in groups of patients that may need to be managed differently to how they're being managed at the moment. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's not just nailing down one individual's data points, but potentially taking it the next level, triangulating it absolutely on absolutely on certain similar demo, uh, factors. I mean, um, yeah. one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't realize when they're watching the news or reading the newspapers. You see a lot of stories about, you know, ambulances being delayed and people waiting for a huge amount of time in emergency departments. And then you see the waiting list numbers. And actually, I tend to think of the problem as it's a it's a circle. And in some respects, it's a vicious circle, because if you're sitting on a waiting list for a very long period of time, chances are you're going to turn up in an emergency department. And if if you don't fix the waiting list problem very quickly, you end up with an emergency department problem because all the patients will start going to A and E, uh, and then and then you've got the worst of all worlds where we've got A and E bursting at the seams and a waiting list bursting at the seams. You have to you have to think of the two things in in conjunction, really. Absolutely, and you think if only I'd done it, if I'd seen that person six months back, it would cost me exactly. a tenth of the 
amount of resources and expenses and medications. Absolutely. And there is a big financial saving in this, um, but that's not kind of, that's not my primary driver, if you like, but I mean, ultimately, um, there is undoubtedly a massive financial uh, benefit to the NHS. Yeah, totally. And and yeah, you're right. Coming back to the human element, the longer it goes untreated, untreated, the harder it is to actually provide a permanent solution. And at best, you're just keeping them running on effectively duct tape or whatever. Exactly. And and the other thing that you know our tool doesn't necessarily um, do anything specific on, but it helps, is this explosion in mental health across England across the world, really, where patients are very, very worried when they're sitting on a waiting list and not hearing anything from anybody as to when they're going to be seen or what's happening to me. So there's a huge amount of stress involved in it as well. So alleviating even that is is a benefit. I can imagine. And again, this is an exciting space in terms of the size of the challenge and also the evolution of the tools available to hand to solve those problems. So going further on that theme of the future of healthcare data, where do you see the field of healthcare data heading in the next five to 10 years? And are there any emerging trends or even technologies that you believe will have a significant impact on data quality and patient care? Undoubtedly, I mean, you know, the AI revolution is underway. Healthcare, traditionally speaking, is always about three steps behind anybody else. So I wouldn't say it's underway in health um, yet, but it, it will do as long as the focus remains on making sure that the data that we load these really powerful technologies with is correct. And as I've said already, I don't think there's enough of a conversation happening about that. But if we if we make the assumption that that will happen, then I think there are some pretty exciting trends in terms of what genes will be able to spot that humans can't. Just the volume of data that a machine can process. I mean, for example, in the time it's, I've been speaking to you, Luna has probably read and classified about 100,000 clinical documents mm. as, as we've been sitting talking for the last 15 minutes. So just imagining the scale of that is, is phenomenal. If, if you could, I think there is a big question that will have to be addressed around are people happy to have their data, healthcare data specifically, heard for, for that purpose? And how do we deal with anonymization, pseudonymization? All of all of those questions are going to have to be dealt with. Uh, but I think they will be dealt with because they have to be. The, the power of what the technology could achieve if it's put against a very large but correct data set is mind-blowing, really. Yeah, and absolutely. And you touch upon my next point, which is, you know, there has to be guardrails around how you use AI. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of scary stories uh, around that as well. But I guess one thing is data privacy and security. Whilst you want to use that data for the right purposes, there's always this um, this risk that um, it could be misused as well. 
And I guess especially in healthcare where there are commercial enterprises that would also love to get their hands on that data, how do you balance the need for data quality with the imperative to protect patient privacy in terms of their and, and control over their own data? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think the two are related, but I do think there are differences between them. So mm. there is nothing wrong with saying that at every turn, we insist on the highest standard of quality about a patient's data. That's the minimum that I would expect of my own healthcare data. The quality of it, that data should be correct. Now, when we get into would I personally be happy to share that data, it is a real difficult question in the sense that your initial reaction is yes, uh, and then you start thinking about, but what if it was being shared with X, Y, or Z, and then you think, no, well, maybe I wouldn't <laughs> be happy for it to be shared with those people, but you can't, yeah. you almost can't have that level of discussion with the public. You either share it or you don't share it. Yeah. You can't say, I'll share it with these five companies, but I won't share it with M10. It, it doesn't work that way. So I think the guardrails and the governance around this, I, personally, I think there needs to be some sort of, dare I said, European slash worldwide mm. agreement that says the data can only be used for these specific purposes, a little bit like GDPR, a little bit like yeah. data protection law. Uh, it can only be used for these specific purposes. Um, and if it's found that it's used for anything else, the fines are so prohibitive that nobody in their right mind would, would attempt to do it. Yeah. Uh, that to me seems to be the only way of doing that. But you know, politically, that's tricky. To get a worldwide agreement, I know even you know even Europe and America operate very different privacy and and security protocols mm. at the minute. So how you would do that on a worldwide scale, I'm not sure. How you would do it on a European scale, I kind of could see. But then there's the question of would Britain do their own one or would they do a European? Well, you, you know, it's it's yeah. a complicated picture. But there's definitely a need for regulation, really strong regulation, I would argue. I couldn't agree more. And I guess in terms of that role in AI in healthcare, beyond data quality, AI, I imagine, is transforming other aspects yeah. of healthcare. What are some other applications of AI that you find promising in improving healthcare services within, say, the NHS and more broadly? I think the, the ones that are most promising are the ones around diagnosis. So I've seen AI uh, that can read MRI scans, CT scans, and spot things that a human eye wouldn't. Um, and that, to me, is incredible. That, and again, the volume, it's very difficult. You know, We've got a shortage in England of radiologists and diagnostic personnel. So there is a problem with the amount of scans that are being done, who is actually interpreting them? A machine could solve that problem, you know, massively and allow us to scan more people and allow us to find more disease than we currently do. You know, the, the UK's cancer outcomes are not good. They're some of the lowest in Europe. And I think that AI has a big role to play in diagnosis and earlier diagnosis. That That's the area that that personally, I, I think, would be amazing to achieve. 
Mm-hmm. And that, that's so true. And I guess in terms of the healthcare professional, it's, um, I, I don't know where I heard it, but something about AI won't replace you, but the person who knows how to use AI better than you will replace you. Mm-hmm. I don't see there being any replacement of healthcare frontline professionals because the demand is so high. Yeah. But I do see potentially the opportunity for AI to augment doctors and nurses to enable them to identify problems sooner and pick up things quicker. Uh, do you see that in the context of um, an NHS and potentially a healthcare transformation that could you could you envision healthcare evolving in the near future? And again, how does that data quality play a pivotal role in that transformation if it if it could be execute implemented? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it. I can certainly see a lot of tasks that let's just call them clinicians. So I, I I'll cover nursing and doctors in in one phrase. Um, there are a lot of tasks that I think could be done by AI that they're currently having to manually do. Mm-hmm. The question then becomes how much resource would that free up and what would that allow us to do differently? Mm-hmm. But my big concern is that if the machines are doing things correctly as humans are, at present, if they're copying what the humans are doing and that's incorrect, then the machines will do it on a scale that's beyond belief. And we have to be very careful about making the data quality problem worse by by adding in a poor process and, and putting a very sophisticated machine on top of that, which is going to replicate that poor process, you know, to the nth degree and potentially make the problem worse in in Luna, we made a very early decision that the machine was not allowed to learn on its own. Mm. We call it supervised learning. Uh, so in the tool, human beings can suggest things to us that may or may not be interesting, but we always have control over whether we allow, we decide whether it is interesting or it's not interesting. The machine isn't allowed to decide for itself mm. because otherwise it'll decide the wrong thing as easily as, easily as it would have decided the right thing and that's dangerous in a healthcare environment and I think that is something that needs to be carefully handled yeah no thank you for that I I guess yeah sometimes I get carried away with <laughs> Nirvana and you know as they say no no system is foolproof <laughs> but yeah it's it's been brilliant and um, I guess if we move away from healthcare and data sure, yeah your journey as an entrepreneur and your entrepreneurship lessons. Mm. And you did mention that a good idea is key, but not enough in business. And then this is going back to your your business where you said um, in the early days and possibly still now, you, you do not have physical offices. And I guess the trend following the lockdown was everyone went remote so you were i was a trailblazer yeah yeah on that as well yeah (laughs) exactly so um but besides that what are some key lessons you've learned about scaling a healthcare data company particularly when it comes to maintaining uh, client facing focus and also optimizing that revenue whilst also minimizing costs yeah i mean that's a big question 
untapped. Yeah, sorry. I, I have a tendency to <laughs> try and boil the ocean. So feel free to pick out the bit that makes <laughs> stands out in your mind. Yeah, I mean, there are two things that I would say are absolute lessons that I've learned. And unfortunately, I've, I've learned them the hard way. Uh, the first one is that always be curious. The amount of people who I meet who aren't curious about things, and I can never work out why why they're not curious, if you see what I mean. I'm curious why they're not curious. Uh, that, to me, is one of the greatest assets in, in business, just to constantly ask, why is that thing the way it is? And does it have to be that way? Or is there a better way of doing it? That curiosity is universal. You know, I think that applies to outside health. That's just a, something that needs to be in you at all times always ask why and the second thing uh, it was interesting i listened to i always i always listen to your podcast but i listened back over the weekend to um one of my favorite ones with lynn the seals the seals lady she's great yeah. <laughs> and 100 uh, the biggest lesson i've learned is the minute you take your eye off the customer mm. you're dead yeah. um it's happened to me twice in my career and both times, the amount of effort I had to put in to get the business back up to a level that needed to be was phenomenal compared to if I hadn't took my eye off it in the first place. The the My job currently in the business is basically to speak to at least three customers every day, every single day. That's what I do. And it could be, you know, I might be talking to them about football. I might be talking to them about you know, golf. I have no idea. It doesn't necessarily have to be trying to sell them anything or trying to just talking to them and understanding what's going on in their lives, understanding what's going on in their work environment, knowing that information and thinking, how can I help them with anything really? It doesn't doesn't have to be um, related to finance. That to me is a massively important um, part of my journey and one that I would say to to listeners that y- you just have to do that at all times just talk to people don't don't worry about I have to force a conversation about a certain topic don't worry about it just talk to them um, so that that's that's massive and I think that it is very easy to be introspective um, and focus on your own internal business and you know every business has issues mine still has lots of issues um but the danger is that you you go focusing on that and take your eye off the customer and that that cannot be allowed to happen i mean generally speaking then you know i'm not a finance guy uh, I, my wife actually works in finance and i anytime people ask me what does your wife do i say i don't know something with spreadsheets i don't really am <laughs> One of the lessons that I suppose I've had to learn pretty quickly is it, it depends on where you are as, in your journey as a business. I'd say in the first kind of two to three years, the most important lesson I learned was cash. It's all about cash. You've got to be absolutely on the ball in terms of invoicing efficiently and then chasing cash, cash collection. Um, if you run out of cash, you're finished. And, and, I hadn't quite appreciated that when I when I started, and I've seen a lot of businesses over the years that expanded too quickly and ran out of cash, and that's a danger. That especially in the early years, people 
tend to, I've seen a lot of people fall into that trap. And then as time goes on, you, you, you know, the cash position kind of looks after itself to a degree if you're doing everything else right. And you start to look at other things, you know, EBITDA and I've had to take a, a crash course in return on investment and, uh, you know, all, all these financial things that tax tax rates. And we recently started, we opened up a New Zealand arm to the business. And that was an eye opener because everything that I'd learned in terms of finance was in the UK. And then it's totally different in New Zealand. It's different tax rates. It's different submissions that you have to make at different times in the year. And you were just thinking, my God, I'm back to almost starting the business again. It's it's <laughs> back to year one. So look, you're always learning that that's probably the most important thing. Be open to learning, be curious about learning and talk to people. That's that's my advice. Brilliant, Barry. And thank you. That, um, that was super insightful. I really enjoyed this conversation. And if any time you want to come back for another show, consider <laughs> <laughs> this an open invitation. We can um, come back and have one on football next time. Or... Yeah, well, definitely. <laughs> Who do you support? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm a Man United fan, which is not all very well for me at the moment. Ouch, yeah. Mind you, you've you've had those good years, right? Under I, did, I, did. I can't complain. <laughs> but yeah, we can talk about football <laughs> more than happy, and maybe over a few pints. Exactly. Because, um, yeah, best best way to have a conversation. Uh, but thank you. Uh, to wrap up, um, I'd like to ask a couple of final questions. Do you have any projects you're currently working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. Um, we've touched on the the AI application, but we're current we're currently building some more algorithms in that space. Uh, real technical stuff, but um, we're building algorithms that will allow us to talk directly to patients. Uh, so the tool will be able to fire off a message to a patient, and then the response back from the patient will be able to read and say whatever the patient has has told us. So big thing for me is bringing the product closer to the patient. Um, that that's kind of the direction of travel for me. Uh, other thing is, of course, uh, we're looking at health inequality in New Zealand. Um, that's a really interesting piece of work. Uh, New Zealand has a very interesting dynamic in terms of the Maori population. Uh, there has very poor health outcomes in comparison to uh, other populations. And so we're starting to help them understand how that group of patients can be treated differently. And I think what I'm, one of the things that I'm working on kind of this year is how can I turn that knowledge to the UK? Because there are groups of patients like that in the UK. Mm -hmm. And they're not Maori, obviously, but there are similar deprivation um, issues in the UK. So we're going we're gonna to be working on health inequality, if you like, for the, for the foreseeable future. And then in, in what spare time I have, I'm writing a book. So hopefully I'll, I'll release a book in the next few months um, if I ever get time to write it. <laughs> and you know what? That's a good, hopefully it will be sooner because you can come back and we can talk about your book. <laughs> Love to. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. And final question, Barry, where can our listeners best connect with you online? With me directly, you can get me on probably the best one is 
whatever it's called this week, X, Twitter, whatever. Yeah. It's just at Barry Mulholland, all one word. Uh, yeah. You get me on LinkedIn, Barry Mulholland again. Uh, and of course, our website uh, is available at uh, mbihealthcaretechnologies.com. Uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch with the business itself, please do. Brilliant. And I'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes and so no worries there for the listeners. And um, it's been amazing. As we wrap up, I hope you found today's episode inspiring, as I did, and look forward to bringing you more groundbreaking insights in the world of business data and healthcare. Until then, stay tuned for another episode of Business Breaks. Barry, thank you very much for your time and insights. My pleasure, Dante. Business Breaks, all things business podcast with Dante Haley and John Byrne.